Well, good evening, everyone. I, I, I've been stressed all day that I was going to say good morning, and I still might, but it's my first time speaking in this facility, so good evening. We're so excited to be with you. Uh, my name is Mike Rutledge. I get to oversee uh, the arts and get to teach every once in a while as well, and uh, I, that, that was just really cool to me, that we can have fun with music because we have such talent here, but also do something that's purposeful and meaningful, praising God. So thanks, band, for that. That was really, really awesome for me. Uh, we're, in, we're in the fifth week of a series that we're calling Be Reasonable, and uh, where we're looking at Romans chapter 12. And he says at the beginning of the chapter, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices, fully devoted to him. Basically, he's saying, this is your reasonable service. He actually said, that's actually in there. And so what he's, he's trying to make this point that there's, there's a reasonable response to what Jesus has done for us. And that's what we've been looking at. And um, what I, I just want to, I think that this is pretty interesting because I think we all understand reasonability, right? Like, when, so I'm in high school, for instance, when I was, um, you know, like I'm on a scale of one to ten, right? Like I'm a four, but the girls I like were nines, right? Not reasonable. So what do I do? I, I play sports, and then I like read, you know, like a book so I can quote something and look smart in front of, front of girls, and then read a po- carry a poetry book around so you seem sensitive, and then I played guitar and joined a band. So I went from like a four to like a solid six, six and a half. Now it seemed more reasonable to ask the nine out. And I always wondered, do you ever notice this, like the, the, that one person who didn't understand reasonability? <laughs> like you're like, how is this guy with her? It's unreasonable. But what, the thing that's interesting is Paul is using this same line of thought and reason to help us understand spiritually what's reasonable. And uh, it, it's, he, the punchline is this. He says, full devotion, complete full devotion to Jesus and offering ourselves completely as living sacrifices, that ought to be the norm. Right, that ought to be normal. And if you're not fully devoted to Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, that ought to be abnormal. It, but what's weird is we look at those super Christians, you know, they're, they're abnormal, right? Yeah, I mean, they're like crazy Christians, those guys, right? I'm kind of good, I'm kind of here in the middle. It's kind of like this, uh, you've seen this Sistine Chapel painting. I, I just think this so demonstrates um, how it is. See God kind of striving and reaching out for us and we're kind of like, eh, a little more, bring it, bring it, bring it. <laughs> That's how we view our response and Paul is saying, and thanks for blurring that out for us, Garrett, too. Appreciate that. <laughs> Kid-friendly facility today. Anyway, Paul is kind of saying that's the way it should not look. It should not look like that. And what's interesting, he goes on to, in greater detail, explain what full devotion to Jesus Christ should look like. He follows this first section by saying, then he says, hey, you're all part, if you call yourself a Christian, you're all part of a body, a bigger body. And the Holy Spirit, we talked about this a couple months ago, the Holy Spirit has given you specific spiritual gifts. And those gifts aren't for your own good. Those gifts are for you to use for the betterment of the body and others. And then we get to this passage that we've been looking at where we found 
this list of actual things, specific things that Paul says, in order to live the full, dedicated life, living sacrifice, here are some things you need to do so that there's no question about what it is. And so here it is, Romans chapter, chapter 12, verse 9 through 13. He says this, love must be sincere, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another, one another above yourselves, never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And what's interesting, he gives us the list. We've talked about four of them already. And he gives us in this list, we get to this one where he says, be joyful in hope. Now, interestingly, up until this point, all of the things that he's given us as a list of things that we should be doing in order to be fully devoted to Jesus are actions, things that we should physically, actively be involved in doing. And then he gets to this one, be joyful in hope. And you realize this is actually a behavior, or not a behavior, it's actually an attitude, right? Joy and hope are attitudes. And it's the only one in there. And here's, here's something that I think is really important. Paul, you might not immediately think, yeah, joy and hope are interconnected. And Paul is wanting us to understand that there is a deep connection between joy and hope in the Christian faith as we're following him. And it was in, I was reading a Newsweek article this week, uh, and, and it said that in, we have more than 6,000 thoughts every single day, right? Some of you just got a new thought. You're going, 6,000, really? Seems like a lot. Seems like not a lot. But in that day where we have six, thousands and thousands of thoughts, we live in this world where we're wanting to be joyful and we're hoping for things and we're thinking about the things to make us joyful and hopeful. Think, think about this. Think about... Even today, the things that we're all hoping for, we hope that we could figure this COVID thing out and be done with it, right? We're hoping that the people in New Orleans can be safe and that they can restore that place. We're, we're hoping that Afghanistan can get back under control. We're hoping that our marriages can be healed. We're hoping it doesn't rain. We hope we get a raise, hoping we don't run out of gas on the way to work. We hope and we live in this state of hope because we're created to be hopeful. So the question for us, oh, and here's another interesting thing about that. So you think about all these things that you hope for, and we hope that all these things happen, and what's interesting about this is that when these things don't happen, we don't have joy. It doesn't produce joy in us, right? Right? We get frustrated, we become discouraged, we might get angry, but not joyful. And here's what's even more interesting, that when these things do happen, they don't create joy in our lives. They may give us a sense of temporary happiness, but they don't produce joy. And so the question for us today is then how can we be joyful in hope how can we be joyful in hope, as Paul tells us to be, in order to be fully dedicated, full-on followers of Jesus Christ, the, what should be the norm? That's the question for us to look at today. And joy, you know, you look at the Greek, you know what it means? Joy. We all get what joy is, right? No, maybe not. Because I think oftentimes we confuse joy and happiness, and they're different. 
The word means uh, gladness or excitement or uh, uh, rejoicing, almost like we're looking forward to our next encounter with something or someone. That's, what, that's the essence of joy. Rick Warren, who's a pastor in California, he says it this way, and I think this is a great sense, uh, a great, great description of what joy looks like. He says, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. That doesn't sound anything like happiness. <laughs> Sounds very different, doesn't it? I found this kind of list, and we'll scroll through these really quick, just looking at joy and looking at happiness. And you see, joy is an attitude, first of all. Happiness is a destination. When I get there, I'll be happy. <laughs> Uh, joy is in your heart. Happiness is the moment. Right now I feel happy. Joy transcends. Happiness reacts or responds. Joy is a practice and a behavior. You have to practice joy. This doesn't come. Happiness comes and goes situationally. Joy is an internal feeling. Happiness is an outward expression and then finally, this one was really, really interesting to me. Joy does not need control. Happiness does. That's a big difference. And then you look at James chapter 1, you see how joy and happiness are not the same. We read this, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What he doesn't say is, consider it pure happiness when you face trials of many kinds. You know why? Because no one's happy when they face trials. Right? We don't want trials. It doesn't make us happy. We want things to make our life easier, not make it harder. And he also says this. You're going to face trials, actually many trials, actually of many kind. Meaning our lives, and you can all attest to the truth of this, we all have trials in our life. And they range in severity and frequency, but we all have trials. So we need to understand that our joy can't be circumstantially dependent because that's happiness. So let's talk about how to cultivate joy, right? Because I could tell you, so now everyone, go be joyful, right? Easy, right? We all got this? Well, Paul actually makes it really simple. He gives us kind of the roadmap in 1 Thessalonians for joy. He says this, always be joyful, solved, right? No, he continues, how do we be joyful? He says, never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for those who belong to Christ Jesus. See, Paul himself persecuted many Christians before he came to Christ. And then after he came to Christ, he was persecuted heavily for being a Christian. So when he tells us to be joyful in every situation, he's not just throwing it out there with no personal experience. He's been there. He's lived in this persecution uh, by, by, by those who, who wanted to stop it, just like Christianity, just like he did. But his solution is very simple. Pray continually and be thankful in every situation. Okay, wait, I don't like that. I don't, I don't want to be thankful in every situation. And here's the problem, is that when we're 
depending on the situation, we're not pursuing joy in the first place. So what's interesting is this simple solution, pray continually and be thankful in every situation. There's sort of a parallel verse that we see in Philippians chapter four, and it says this, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, by prayer and thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And you wanna know the number one thing that steals our joy is our anxiety because we're so concerned about what we might be missing or what we want to have or what we don't have, and it steals our joy. And the solution, the antidote to anxiety, which steals our joy, is the same thing which brings us joy, prayer and thanksgiving. And I'm going to tell you, it's not, I'm not saying this like real easy, just go pray and be happy and thankful and joyful. <laughs> this is a practice. So we've got to figure out how we can be in those moments. And what happens too often when we aren't getting what we want or we feel frustrated and we stop praying, we stop being thankful, and we become entitled and we kind of hold God to a standard of some deal we've fabricated in our mind that he's failing us on. And we walk away at that very moment without joy. So joy is a practice that has to be practiced in order for it to take root in our life. So let's look at hope, though, for a second. And hope just you want is anticipation or expectation. I'm wanting something and believing that something is going to happen. And what's really interesting when I was studying this is that I realized that hopeful people in the Bible, people, the characters in the Bible that were hopeful, often recognized that there was no evidence that things were going to get better, and yet they chose hope. Think about Abraham and Sarah. They wanted a kid really bad. Well, I'm going to tell you what. At 35, they were not more hopeful in a kid than when they were 25. And at 75, even less. They waited till 100 years old to have a child and they had to keep hoping. Think about the people of Israel. They were, they were gonna be going to the promised land, but it took them how long? 40 years? At some point, you start going, I don't know. Maybe this isn't gonna happen after all. <laughs> it's tough to keep the hope up 40 years in. And then there's this really cool story about this guy, Hosea. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. I'm not going to get into the story. It's actually kind of nutty. But here's, here's, here's something that's really cool. He prophesied to Israel in a time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires. And he says this very, very profound statement in, the, in, the, in chapter 2 of the book. He's, he, he claims this. I will give her grape fields there and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. They're being at that moment oppressed by other nations who are trying to take Israel out, take all their stuff, keep them from being successful, keep them from rising into power and being able to live the way they wanted to live. And in that moment, Hosea says, God will transform the valley of trouble into a door of hope. And that's an actual place, it's the Valley of Acor, which actually means hope or disturbance. And here's what I know. Some of you here tonight 
in this very moment feel like you're standing in the valley of trouble. And you're thinking, wow, I sure could use a door of hope. And what Hosea is telling us is, as we walk through the valley of trouble, we get to the place where we can put our hope in something because we don't have it right now. G.K. Chesterton says this, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery and platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. You've probably all heard the verse. It's from Proverbs chapter 13, and it says, Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And we all get the longing fulfilled is a tree of life thing. But what I realized when I was studying this week for this message, I always read that and thought, hope deferred makes the heart go sick. Yeah, when, when the thing I'm hoping for isn't going to happen for a long time, right? A long time. I have to wait because I'm hoping for something in the future. That's not actually what it says. It's much worse than that. What he actually says is that hope, the act, when your hope is actually, when you can't even hope, that's what makes us sick because we have nothing to believe in anymore. When, when we're out of the ability to hope, when we feel hopeless and we're without hope, our, hope, our heart withers. I, can't, I have no hope for my marriage anymore. I have no hope for my future. My finances are beyond hope. My relationship with my kids are hopeless. My relationship with my parents is just hopeless. And what do we do at that very moment? Rather than continuing in hope, we check out. And what we believed wouldn't happen, doesn't happen. Yet Paul tells us in Romans 12 to have joy in hope, which is hope is what? The actual expectation in the absence of the thing we desire. Have joy in hope. Let me just point out the obvious here, that uh, having hope means that you don't have everything you want, right? Because you don't hope for what you've already got, you hope for what you don't have. And so here's the encouraging news. As followers of Jesus, for the rest of your life, you will not have everything you want. So let's pray and go on our merry way. And not only are we supposed to be joyful at the many trials, the many kinds of trials, we need to understand the implication here is that we will also be without, and therefore we must lean into hope. And so we've looked at joy and we've looked at hope, but Here's what's interesting about this passage. I want to look into this phrase, joyful in hope, because it tells us to be joyful amidst our trials, and our joy is to be found in our hope. Wait, wait, hold, whoa. Don't just hope for stuff. Don't just be joyful. Actually, find your hope or your joy in what you're hoping in, not what you're hoping for. Okay, let me say it again. We should find our joy in our hope, not in something we're hoping for. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, if our hope in Christ 
it is only for this life, then we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. Because our hope isn't in something happening. That's our happiness. I got a new car. I got a new job. I got a new girlfriend. That's happiness. Our hope is actually to be in something bigger than that. See, in every situation, I talk, Jason Dunn, I talk to him sometimes, and he'll be having a tough time, and he'll be like, oh, man, whew, and he'll tell me what's going on. I'm like, yeah, that sounds tough. He's like, yeah, I feel like God's trying to sanctify me. I'm like, I'm just focused on the bad news here, and you're like looking at this whole thing like God's involved somehow. It seems like he's absent. No, that's exactly right. That in that moment, we should be, Joyful in the hope that we have, not in the conclusion or the resolution of the problem we're facing. Because our hope has to go beyond this world or we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. And so, what I hope in can give me joy. What I hope for can give me happiness. And we're told to hope or have joy in hope. And so, I just want to hit you with this phrase. If you're a note taker, write this down. If you're not a note taker, write this down. Here's what, here's what I want us to understand as we close the day. That we look behind us to see where we're going. We look ahead to forget where we've been. We look behind us to see where we're going. And we look ahead to forget where we've been. You know, many of us struggle with our past because our past actually is part of what you are today, right? And for many of us, our past can produce shame, guilt, regret, sorrow, sadness. It can also produce anger, disappointment, frustration with myself. And I'm sure if I sat down and talked with you and you said, if you only knew, and you told me some of the stories, I would say, wow, who could blame you for being frustrated? Who could blame you for running out of hope? But then you come across this really interesting thing, this verse where it says, with God, nothing is impossible. So even in the situational, earthly things, our hope should be in him because nothing is beyond the scope of God's ability to accomplish in my life. And even, by the way, if he doesn't accomplish what I desire, he's at work in something greater in my life, in the life of those around us, and I can be part of that, and that's what I hope in. Look at this verse. This is, again, Paul speaking. He says, my brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul, let's talk about, you want to tell me your stories? You could. Paul had some stuff, too. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He'd killed many. He presided over the stoning of Stephen. I want to talk about a guy who had a history that would say, no, don't believe in that, walk away from that, Paul. But he didn't look at what was behind him. He looked forward to forget what was behind him. And many of us here today need to be looking ahead of us 
so that we don't remember the bad stuff that's behind us. But not only do we need to look ahead, we need to look behind us to see where we're going. And I just want to point out, hope is not this blind leap of faith, okay? It's not this like, I just believe I can do anything. I believe I can run a marathon. I've never run a mile in my entire life, but I believe I can run a marathon. It doesn't work like that. Hope is rooted in something greater than me. And I think a great demonstration are the people of Israel. They had a habit of remembering things that they would celebrate. And you think about this, the story of Israel, they had witnessed, remember they were, in, they were uh, slaves in Egypt, and then they witnessed the 10 plagues, and then they were released, and then they crossed the Red Sea, and then they wandered, and then at one point, God provided water from a rock to sustain them, and at one point, God provided manna from heaven so that they could continue to eat and sustain them that way. And then they were just about to enter the promised land 40 years later, 40 years of hope in between. They're about to enter the promised land. They had a couple last little tasks that were kind of major. One of them was that they had to cross the Jordan River at flood season. Now, you remember, they'd already walked across the, the Red Sea on dry land, but this one's different. This is a high, raging, you know, river and... Uh, and they had to do it a little bit differently. This time, instead of Moses going, well, Red Sea, all right, go guys. This time, the priests had to take the ark and step into the water. And as they walked into the water, it stopped flowing and parted into dry land. And only through their act of faith and hope, as they walked deeper and deeper into the Jordan River, it stopped flowing. And then they walked across and I want to read this to you because this is a really, really cool passage. It says this, So Joshua called the 12 men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, Go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord, your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder, 12 stones in all, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the ark of the Lord's covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. We look behind us to see where we're going because just as Israel did, we remember the great things that God has done in our life because that's the path we want to be on, right? And how can you be thankful for something if you don't remember the things that God is doing in your life? If we get so focused on what's wrong, if we're stuck looking at our past, frustrated with things that have been done to me or by me, I have a different perspective on the traje trajectory of my future. And our hope actually needs to be in big, something bigger than ourselves. It needs to be in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, not merely a better future, a playoff berth for my favorite team. Sorry, Dave, not happening. <laughs> Even a restored relationship, while that's good, is not the hope. The hope is in the one who can provide that for us. 
And sometimes we have to hope, even when we don't see the signs of a better future. Psalm 146 says it this way, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Psalm 33, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Very important for us to remember what God has done on our behalf. And remembering who God is and what he's done for us. Refocusing our thoughts to align with his truth and choosing to be grateful and praise. Prayer and thanksgiving is super powerful in our lives. Maybe that's where some of us are today. I know in my own life, just there's stuff going on. that <laughs> Susie and I, we're praying so hard for things and we're just saying but I'm just gonna hope. And I'm gonna tell you, it gets heavy and it's hard sometimes. And I wanna just give up. But I'm not gonna, we're gonna hope. And one of the ways we can do that is through remembering Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And so, as we close this morning, hopefully you grabbed the communion cup on the way in. If you didn't, you can grab them back there. If someone's available to pass out, if you don't have one, maybe you can raise your hand. Jesus Christ came and gave himself for the sole purpose of letting us be in relationship with him, be known by him, loved by him, and live in the right relationship that he created us to live in. So, peel off your top layer here. Take out your styrofoam wafer. And it says this, 1 Corinthians, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then it goes on and says this. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord, the great gift you gave on our behalf, giving, your, giving yourself completely for us, the very example that Paul calls us to do to be living sacrifices on behalf of the furtherance of the gospel and the good of the body of Christ. Help us embrace that what should be normal call to live fully devoted 
sacrificing ourselves and help us find our joy in the very provider of the hope that we have. Thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness and thank you for making yourself available to us. We ask this in your name, amen.